According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 3, but we won't be staying there that long. We're just going to use it to launch into our doctrinal study on uh, judgments and rewards, the prize and the prizes, singular and plural, that we have to look forward to when that trumpet sounds. Paul says, uh, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I want to take a couple classes to uh, flesh out what these prizes are, what it is we should be looking for, and, uh, and why it's not prideful to be reaching for a prize. It's actually part of what we're called to do. So that's we're going to start here tonight. Before we do, though, we're going to take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under his word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for tonight that once again you, uh, in your patience, are letting us come to receive instruction. Now, Father, you uh, desire for us to grow, you command us to grow, and you've provided everything necessary so that we can grow, Father. We have a, a free country, we can uh, assemble, we're not uh, here in fear that the government's going to shut us down and haul us away. Uh, the doors are open, Father, and whosoever will may come. And, uh, and I thank you for these here tonight that have uh, exercised positive volition so as to be here. And I ask that you would reward that and that you would provide abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. Allow us to study, to grow, to learn these things, and, uh, and then to live them out, Father, in a way that glorifies your Son. I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. We'll take some questions tonight before we get started on this study. And the microphone's ready to go. And so you get our lead-off question right there. Did you see the raised hand? All right. This is a name I do not say on the website. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask you to clarify what you said uh, a week or so ago about worshiping the Bible. I'm sorry? Worshiping the Bible. Worshiping the Bible, right. And I said, uh, I was on a Sunday morning message, I had said a lot of times uh, that a lot of times churches of our type doctrinal churches, Bible churches, whatever you want to call us, that we will be accused of, they call it Bible-olatry. And they will, um, they'll actually mock us for it. They'll say, well, you're paying too much attention to the Bible or you're, you're, you're worshiping the Bible as if it was God himself. And, and, you know, the Bible's good and everything, but don't go overboard with it. Don't become a fanatic, you know, because we should be, you know, there's other things we should be doing in our Christian walk. We should be serving people and whatever. Um, and so that term gets thrown around, that Bibleology, and typically it's, um, it's, 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 it's done by our friends. It's done by born-again believers that just feel that you and I are slightly um, hyper about our, our Bible devotion. And it's unfortunate that they do that. And, and I do like, um, just to remind folks, you know, I think it's Psalm 118, is it? It's uh, that he has magnified his word in accordance with his name. I probably don't have the right psalm on that. But the, um, I will do a search and I will find it. 
because he has magnified his word in accordance with his name. There it is, Psalm 138. Well, it was close. It had a 1 and an 8 in it. Could have been 108 or 118 or 128. It was 138, all right. So, um, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. Ooh, there's a discussion. Um, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Remember, loving kindness and truth is actually a representation of Jesus Christ himself. The law came by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Uh, For you have magnified your word according to all your name, in accordance with, on a level with, all your name. And so that shows the, the reverence that God himself has magnified his word. That if he put it in writing, if he revealed it, remember the, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. And so um, what is his word worthy of? Is, is it worthy of, uh, of respect? Is it worthy of devotion? Is it worthy of our attention? Is it worthy of our worship? And that's where some folks want to draw the line and they're not comfy with that. Uh, because, you know, you, you worship God and Him only. And I get that. But this phrase here, um, because God Himself has magnified His Word in accordance with His own name, that puts it up there on par with Himself. And so uh, I think Bibleolatry misses the mark when it fails to recognize that this is what God Himself has put His Word on that, on that spectrum. So does that make sense? Does that help with what you were asking? All right. We have a front row follow-up then to, uh, to that? Okay. Simply put, if we don't, God, God can only be known through His Word. So the, the less time you spend in the Word, the less you know God. Oh, that's very true. That's right. So this yes. is, I'm sure this is why He did it, because He provided the word for us to be everything necessary for our lives and for godliness. So... Um, That's true as well, because see, special revelation is, is absolutely necessary. Natural revelation doesn't get you there. You can see the universe and see creation, and, and you can realize that He's powerful, that God exists, His invisible attributes are seen, but you can, you can hum under a tree all day long, and you're never going to learn that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That comes through the scriptures. That comes through the Bible. You need special revelation in order to uh, unfold God's plan for your life. And that's, uh, that's very true. Also, I think, uh, as you pointed out, I like is it First Peter or Second Peter that talks about the sufficiency of scripture. It's Second Peter that um, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So if you're not living in the word of God, how will you receive all things that are necessary for life and godliness, right? For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Again, that's the word of God. That's the canon of scripture as he's revealed it to us. So I, uh, I preach the sufficiency of scripture. And when I, whenever I encounter somebody that, that wants to supplement the Bible because the Bible is insufficient... Uh, I just say, I'm sorry, the Bible is not insufficient. It, is, it has supplied everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so that's the issue there. So, all right, thank you for that. All right, let's go back six rows. 
Actually, Lewis doesn't mind if I mention his name on the recording. So, this is this is Lewis. Yes. All right. Just I hate to just follow up. Is it is it possible? I mean, that people just don't know the Bible is inspired. Probably so. So that was just another book. Yes, I think I think we we live in a biblically illiterate generation, and I think. They've bought into the world's message because uh, they went to college and took a comparative religions course or something, and they believe that the Bible is just a, a gathering of oral legends that found their way into written form at some point, and then they were compiled by religious leaders at some point, and the whole idea of inspiration is lost. It's gone, and... and uh, they would, you know, uh, they would not accept what we accept, that all scripture is God-breathed, that God himself wrote it, that it's, it's like the hypostatic union, undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person forever. That's, that's our Savior, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Our Bible is, is likewise fully God, fully man, in the sense that God is the author through the human agents that he chose. And so, um, but I would agree, I think, I think most people today don't have a clue what the Bible even is and how it was written. I would agree with that. Which, by the way, is a prayer request, too. Uh, if you've been with us in prayer meetings, you know that I've got a, an, an atheist friend that I've been praying for, his salvation. Uh, and um, he has these crazy ideas of what he thinks the Bible is. But just last week, he came across um, a Wikipedia article for textual criticism. And it's, it's like blown his mind. He had no idea that even even was a thing. And so now he's learning about manuscripts and he's learning about different things and, and uh, he said uh, if I have questions on this, can I talk to you? Would you be my pastor? I don't have a pastor. And I said, yeah. <laughs> Text criticism, I'll talk about that any day. So uh, anyway, keep him in prayer and uh, we're going to get him saved. or The Lord's going to get him saved at, uh, at some point, but we'll see how that happens. Alright, anything else tonight? We want to get into the rewards, the prizes. It's not all fun and games, but it is prizes at the end. All right, then. Thank you, Chris. So let's talk about this prize. And uh, we'll talk about singular and plural. Because ultimately, it is. I mean, Jesus is the prize, is he not? But we have him, and he has us, and this is our position in Christ. And uh, some of these other aspects, I think, are, are worth looking at as well. And so before we move on to, to verses uh, 17 and following, I think it's important because I think we tied together everything in verse 16. Yeah, we keep walking in step, uh, living by the same standard to which we have attained. And so that's what we talked about on Sunday morning, that we walk, we walk in step, we stick with what got us here. We're not going to do something different uh, if... Uh, uh, because the uh, the uh, what got us to maturity is what we're going to stick with and uh, between now and, and the trumpet. So that was uh, what we looked at in verse 16. So in any event, talking about the prize now for tonight. And uh, simply to introduce it with uh, our text here, um, reminding ourselves that this is Paul's pattern, but we're told that we're to imitate this pattern. It's normative for the entire church age. So when Paul says, I do this, He's then going to follow this up with, uh, you've got to do this too. <laughs> that as many as are perfect need to think this way, have this attitude. And uh, he demonstrates in that verse then that this is normative. It's not just Paul's opinion. And uh, folks will try to mock that too because they'll read a verse like 1 Timothy 2.12 that says, uh, I do not allow a woman to teach 
or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain silent. And they look at that and they say, oh, well, Paul doesn't allow that, but that's just Paul being a misogynist, and that's not normative for the church age. And, and they will immediately just dismiss it, failing to recognize that when Paul writes what he does, that he says, this is the mind of Christ, and you're to think this way as well, and uh, such as we see it here. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way, or have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. So understand that it is normative. When Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, uh, write your own name in there. We all should be doing this. We are pressing on towards the prize. And so if you think of it this way, and this is just introduction, but if you think of it this way, if you are in a race and you are running and you are reaching forward and you are pressing on and you're in that last stretch, right? You're in that last stretch. What, do we, what is it we're running towards? Well, here it's called the goal or the bullseye or the finish line. What is the finish line for the church? Well, dispensationally speaking, this is what we're looking at, okay? Now remember, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is descriptive of the dispensation of the church. This is not a description of the Old Testament. It's not a description of the angels. It's not a description of Jews or Gentiles in any way. So uh, recognize that when we study the Bible, we study each passage and where it fits and what, uh, what God's plan is unfolding at each stage. So we're not talking about from Adam to Abraham where he was working in a Gentile stewardship or from Abraham to Jesus when he was working in a Jewish stewardship. We're talking about after Pentecost in the church age when, Paul, when the Apostle Paul was writing, and uh, this upward call of God in Christ Jesus is a description of the church age. It's a description of the dispensation of the church. That is, the heavenly citizenship in Christ. We're the only stewardship that are heavenly citizens. Every other stewardship was either a Gentile or a Jewish uh, uh, believer, and their citizenship was earthly. They were citizens of Greece or Rome or Babylon or, or Israel or, or what have you. And, uh, but our citizenship is in heaven. We are a heavenly race, a heavenly people, a chosen people in Christ. And that's what we're uh, looking at here. Okay, And this is our upward call. So with this as our upward call and with this as our course or our race, what then is the finish line? The finish line is the rapture. The finish line for the dispensation of the church is the rapture. And I don't know if I stressed it well enough as we were looking at verse 14, as we were talking about the goal or the prize. I think we were looking at uh, the, the vocabulary as it relates to bullseyes if you're shooting an arrow or a finish line if you're running a race. Um, and that perhaps I did not stress the, uh, the uh, rapture context for verse 14 the way I did, in, I know I did in verse 11. And the way that I know we will be doing in verse 21, I think three times in this chapter, Paul is uh, making an allusion, a reference to the rapture itself as the finish line for the church age, as the finish line for what we all should be reaching forward to if we should be the rapture generation living at the time that the trumpet sounds. So you recall uh, in verse 11, when uh, he says um, this is a part of uh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that if perhaps I may even attain to the out-resurrection from the dead. Remember that verse? 
And it was so unusual in the expressions that were used, not the normal word for resurrection, but a compound word for resurrection that speaks of an out-resurrection. Well, what's an out-resurrection compared to a resurrection, right? You know, I mean, a resurrection is a dead body that comes back to life. That's a resurrection. But the out-resurrection, and it's unique to this passage here, the out-resurrection is really kind of a marvelous way to describe a resurrection without a physical death. That is, you're getting out of the physical death experience with this out-resurrection that uh, 1 Corinthians 15 calls the transformation in the twinkling of an eye. That uh, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, is what we're looking at there. And so, in the potential of maybe, from verse 11, in order that I may possibly, perhaps, attain to the out-resurrection of the dead, in my mind, the best interpretation of verse 11 is that's a rapture reference. Because that's the one that's iffy, that's the one that's uncertain. I mean, I want to be the rapture generation, but I don't know that I am, I want to be. If perhaps I am, if perhaps the, the rapture happens in my lifetime, great. I want to be found ready when that trumpet sounds. And to me, that is um, a simple way to understand verse 11. And it's not an issue of, um, I think, the problematic understandings whereby Paul is um, puzzled about whether he's going to get resurrected or not. You know, like, well, if maybe I might get resurrected someday. Well, that's dumb. Who's not going to get resurrected someday? We're all going to get resurrected. We're all believers. We're all in Christ. And so, um, you know, the idea of maybe being resurrected someday is kind of dumb if, if, if we're just talking about resurrection in general. The only way that we can have a maybe connected with a resurrection is if, in fact, we're discussing the rapture. And that's what's happening, I believe, is what's happening in verse 11. I believe that's also what's happening in verse 21. So I am uh, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, and I'm going to keep on reaching day by day, moment by moment, until that trumpet sounds. And he calls it here the goal. The goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so think of this verse as well in a rapture context. Think about this verse as well. When the trumpet sounds, are you reaching forward? Are you pressing on? Or uh, were you sloughing off a bit? (laughs) Okay. And it's not an exact parallel. And some people mess it up really badly. When they go to the Gospels and they want to preach about the ten virgins, they want to preach about the five faithful virgins and the five faithless virgins and and the five that have the oil and the five that don't. And that's a parable that's describing the kingdom of heaven, that's describing Israel and their expectation for urgency when the king is coming for his kingdom, coming for second advent. Now that's not a church passage, it's not a rapture passage, but I still think it teaches concepts that we can readily adapt. We can adapt those concepts easily because we too are living under an imminent uh, threat of, of trumpet, right? We're living under an in, imminent threat of, of game over, yanked up out of here and give an answer, give an account for the one who, who saved you. And, uh, and so, you know, that's why you want to keep short accounts. You don't want to have prolonged periods in darkness or carnality. Uh, You want to be pressing forward when the trumpet sounds, if perhaps you may attain to the out-resurrection of the dead. And uh, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So um, that is clearly the finish line for the dispensation of the church. And uh, so we could think of that if you want. You could even think of the rapture itself as the prize. 
And so uh, this can be thought of as the prize singular with multiple prizes to follow the judgment seat of Christ. Does that make sense? And so the prize singular when uh, the entire bride is assembled for the first time ever and uh, the first time, I mean, the, the first time it can possibly be assembled is the rapture of the church because the church is so spread out over 21 centuries now of, of uh, 20 completed centuries in this new young century we're in. Um, but most of the bride is in heaven already. It's only the last living generation that's still here that's going to get raptured. And so as a finish line, when the whole body is assembled, when we experience that epi-synagogue the Bible talks about, when we experience that ultimate, that epi-synagogue, that epi-gathering together, um, you can think of that as the finish line. The prize, singular, with the multiplied prizes to follow when, uh, when the rewards are then given. All right. And so uh, what are these prizes? What are these prizes we might expect to receive? That's kind of what the study is all about, so we can get a refresher course on judgments and rewards and the prizes, the crowns that uh, the overcomer receives and that uh, are uh, given on the basis of faithfulness. Two more issues here on introduction before we really start slugging our way through the details. Um, So point B then, every race has one winner, right? 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Remember the Bible was written in the ancient world before the... uh, the uh, millennial generation and the everybody with a participation ribbon. Um, the, the first Corinthians nine twenty four says that there's one winner and one crown. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. And that's our same term from Philippians. Only one receives the prize run in such a way that you may win. Now, every believer can be a winner. Why is that? I mean, aren't some believers better than other believers? Aren't some believers, you know, some runners are faster and, and, uh, and so forth? Well, the reason why every race has one winner, yet every believer runs a personal race. Think about it. The, the, the body of Christ corporately is advancing from Pentecost to rapture. So corporately, we're all in that boat, and each generation comes and goes, and each generation unfolds, and then eventually we'll have a rapture generation, and they're the ones who are going to cross the finish line. And they're going to cross the finish line of the rapture simultaneously. <laughs> okay, And the twinkling of an eye, when that trumpet sounds, and that rapture generation, it's going to be a, you know, if there's a million, 10 million Christians that get raptured, it's going to be a, a 10 million way tie for first place because we're all going to be uh, snatched up together. Actually, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be transformed and caught up together with them in the clouds. But here's the thing. We have a corporate journey that we're making from Pentecost to rapture. And then individually, members of the body of Christ then run. But we run a personal race. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, we're told. That uh, we have works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That it's a personalized race course for each one of us. And uh, we're not cookie cutters. We're not identical to one another. And everybody's race is different. And for most of us, our race goes places we didn't think it was going to (laughs) go. But that's where our Lord took us. And so we keep running. And uh, we keep running because we're yoked to Jesus Christ and he's taken us here. And uh, and that's, uh, that's a privilege as well. So every believer runs a personal race. 
And, um, you know, my race is not your race, your race is not my race. Uh, there are some similarities, of course. Testing is common to man. There's features of my race that you've already gone through, so you can, you can uh, coach me through it and encourage me in that. There's features of my race that you haven't gotten to yet, so I can encourage you in those things and coach you through those things. Um, and the thing uh, for, uh, for, it's not like in, in, if, if it was all one big group race, then we're hostile to each other. We're in competition against one another. We're competitors. And I don't want you to succeed. I want you to fail. In fact, I'd be pretty happy if I could just trip you up or knock you down or something, and then I get to build a bit of, of a lead there. Because um, that's just how I do it. Um, <laughs> but that's not how, if we're all on individual races, see, then I want you to succeed. I want everybody to succeed. And, and your success does not diminish my success. It's, uh, it's a marvelous thing how this, how this comes together. So, Acts 13, 36. We're talking about David here, and this has come up several times in recent classes, but um, the, the fact that in Psalm 16, David wasn't talking about himself, he was talking about Jesus, prophetically, about uh, that you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay in the process there. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. So you've got a life purpose. There's a race set before you, and David ran his race. He was done. And, um, you know, Solomon had to take it from there. And David was done. He'd done his course. And uh, there it is. And every believer has their course. Paul had his course. He told Timothy, he says, I finished my course. I fought the good fight. We each have a course, and it's different. Let's be clear on that. So uh, we, can, uh, we can learn from each other in terms of the similarities, but we can't clone one another, and, and we can't compare one another either. I don't want to get into a, into a relative thing and compare you know, how my race is stacked up against Ralph Braun or Colonel Theme or anybody, anybody right? any other kind of a pastor. Because even if you have a similar gift and a similar calling and a, a similar ministry, uh, it's it, that's the similarities end pretty quickly when uh, when you're dealing with uh, the things that are unique to your generation, and we got that term there in, in Acts, generation served the purpose of God in His own generation, and uh, David would not have done well a generation earlier or a generation later. You know what would David? How would David have done in in the 1990s? <laughs> you know, uh, you just think about it. how would Colonel Theme have done with millennials, right? You know, and in his in his uh, heyday in the 1950s and the 1960s, there was no finer exegesis anywhere in the world. I'm convinced that that Baraka was 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 where to be, and uh, but he didn't have a church full of millennials. I know that. Okay, it was a different world back then. It was a different generation back then, and uh, we gotta. I think we gotta be clear on that. So every believer runs a personal race. Uh, Ephesians 2:10. sad how many folks don't know this verse because they're so busy quoting Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And, and I don't, you know, don't blame them. Those are great verses. I like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All right? I love that. Grace gospel. I, I get it. 
But then it continues. We're saved by grace through faith. For what reason? Why? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And notice, you know, beforehand, what is that? Foundation of the world, divine decrees. We're talking eternity past. We weren't here to put our input in. We couldn't make requests. We couldn't, you know, jockey for position. Um, but this is what he's called us to do. And so these good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is our, uh, the purpose of God in our generation. And when we fulfill ours, like David fulfilled his, we'll do the same thing. We will uh, sl- fall asleep, that's physical death, be laid with, uh, to rest with our fathers, that's burial somewhere, and, uh, wait, and decay. <laughs> our bodies can decay while, uh, while we're awaiting the resurrection. And uh, so we see it there. But those works prepared beforehand, did he prepare identical works for every single one of us to do? Of course not. That's ludicrous. Each, uh, each servant has his ministry or her ministry and the, the works that are prepared are prepared in his wisdom for everything that we have to attain from the cross to the crown. From the day of our salvation to the day of our departure. And God's got a plan for all of that. That's our race. Hebrews 12. And it follows chapter 11 where we have a great cloud of witnesses. We've got all these Old Testament heroes, believers that walked by faith, even though none of them were baptized into Christ, none of them were spirited, well, some of them were spirit-filled uh, in the sense of prophets and judges and, and the Holy Spirit could come upon people. But none of them had a permanent indwelling like we have a permanent indwelling. And uh, all of these gained approval through their faith. Yet, they did not receive what was promised. The Old Testament came to a close and we didn't have a kingdom on earth yet. (laughs) And uh, so the New Testament opens and here's John the Baptist saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand and uh, the greatest of, of any Old Testament saying. But now we have this great cloud of witnesses in chapter 12. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us And let us run with endurance the race. Not the one we pick out for ourselves. Or not the one we feel like. The one that's set before us. That's right. He does the setting. He does the appointing. Like he does the allotting. And he does all the things that we look at. Jesus Christ is head of the church. And he knows what he's doing. Even when we don't. Especially when we don't. He knows what he's doing. And so we run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Because that's, that's who he is. That's what he, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Fixing our eyes on him. We enter within the veil. That's where stability is. He entered there as a forerunner. And, uh, and he, he set the example for us. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He never took his eyes off what his eyes were fixed on. We should do the same thing. We shouldn't uh, allow ourselves to look around and get distracted and get scared and get worried and get depressed and all these things. Remember when Peter got his eyes off the Lord, what happened? He started sinking in the, in the water. As long as he was fixed on the Lord, he was walking on the water. How, how cool is that? All right. So it's an individual race. We want to recognize that. And of course, we all get to the same finish line and we all get to the same uh, judge's table called the judgment seat of Christ. 
The judgment seat of Christ is the post-mortem life course evaluation for the church. Okay? I made up this term in 2011, and I really intended to use it a whole lot more than I really I forgot about it. Um, but I found it now, and I want to bring it back. Post-mortem life course evaluation. That's what this is. It is a uh, post-mortem life course evaluation. Meaning it is given unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. It is post-mortem. You get graded on the totality of your life's work, on the totality of your production. And that evaluation comes at the judgment seat of Christ. It's um, Old Testament saints don't go to, to our judgment. They've got their own. Angels don't go to our judgment. They've got their own. In fact, we'll be judging them. We're judging the angels. Um, the uh, tribulational saints, the millennial saints, there's other resurrections and there's other judgments, but the rapture is connected to the judgment seat of Christ. And so when the church comes to a conclusion, uh, it's the church as a body then that's going to be caught up into heaven and we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That is our courtroom. That is our court. And uh, uh, other believers don't stand at that court. And of course, no unbeliever stands at that court. Every unbeliever goes to the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. See, this ought to be clear. I hope we're good on this. Because um, some of those notes would be worth reviewing as well. The whole idea of, um, the, I mentioned this morning, these dumb jokes about dying and going to heaven and then St. Peter, you know, asking why should I let you in kind of a thing. And, and um, you know, they're amusing, I guess, but they, they bug me a lot. Because the whole idea of, it, of any kind of an iffy kind of a thing, there's no iffy. If, if you're saved, you're at the judgment seat of Christ, plain and simple. If you're unsaved, you're at the great white throne, plain and simple. You're going to the courtroom you're going to. And when you get there, you're going to receive the recompense. And it's not, uh, it's not up for debate about whether you're saved or lost. That's already determined. And uh, that's a given on the basis of being at the judgment seat of Christ. Are we, is that clear? And, and there's, a, there's a tremendous confidence in that, in, uh, in different things. <laughs> Back when I was working in the jail, I had an inmate that said, Boy, I hope I see you on Judgment Day. I just smiled. I said, Yeah, I hope, you, I hope so too. Because my Judgment Day is the Judgment Seat of Christ, and I want you to be there. Okay? And uh, as far as that goes. So this is a post-mortem life course evaluation. And this... I, I hope you keep these terms in mind because this will help if you ever want to study sheep and goat judgment and other judgments. Keep in mind, sheep and goat judgment is not a post-mortem, end-of-life course evaluation. These are people that survived the tribulation that are either believers or unbelievers, and it's a pass-fail judgment. If they're saved, they're going to advance into the millennium and keep on living. If they're unsaved then Jesus will execute them and send them all to hell. That's the sheep and goat judgment. It's not a post-mortem, because they're still living, life course evaluation. It's a pass-fail uh, criteria whether they enter the millennium or not. Same thing, by the way, with the wilderness judgment of Israel. Study that next to the, in Ezekiel chapter 20. That's not a post-mortem judgment either. He regathers all the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth. He brings them into the land of Israel. But before he takes them to Jerusalem, he stops and has judgment with them in the wilderness of Judea. And he enters into judgment with them. Again, it's not post-mortem. 
the ones that are believers, they're going to keep on living. They're going to enter in, they're going to march up the Holy Highway and march into Jerusalem. And they're going to keep on living. And because they keep on living, what happens? They keep accruing more crowns, more rewards, more treasure, more... Uh, they've got more to to stack up. You don't get to your post-mortem life course evaluation until you're post-mortem, right? (laughs) Dead, okay? Not until life is over. If there's more living to do, then that means there's more criteria to be judged. There's more fruit bearing that has to be judged as far as gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. So, we're only talking about the judgment seat of Christ as being the post-mortem life course evaluation for the church. And the great passage on this is 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. And I've read this several times. Verses 5 through 15. And I don't see the criteria... Excuse me. I don't see criteria here that some people seem to think is here or that I get accused of. So let's see. What is it that we're judged on? What does it say? Well, just recognize in the first uh, few verses, uh, Paul is addressing their strife and their jealousy. This is a church that had a lot of problems and they were picking at one another. Uh, basically they were schismatic and the church was really four churches fractured into one church fractured into four because one said I'm of Paul another said I'm of Apollos another said I'm of Cephas another one said I'm of Christ and and they were no better than the other three groups Um, so verse 5 says what then is Apollos and what then is Paul servants through whom you believed even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one So don't make an idol out of your pastor. Don't make an idol out of a human being. Recognize that God has simply given them there as a servant to build you up and uh, and learn from that example and and imitate it. So I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So Paul preceded Apollos and his job was the planting job, but then he left town. Apollos arrived and he did the watering. And then he left town. Cephas somehow wandered through. He did some things. Okay. And at each step of the way, are we glorifying man? What are we doing? We recognize that each assignment, is, they, were, they were running their course. Paul was running his course. Apollos was running his course. These things were happening. And it just so happens that on occasion, those courses intersect. Right? And so when the Lord brought you to Austin Bible Church, then your, your course intersected with my course. And, and, and all of us were, were now on an intersection and, and then some people's courses take them elsewhere. Okay? That's what happens. So I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. So recognize that. Be faithful as he uses you, but know that it's not you doing it. God's doing it. He's at work in and through you. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And this is the point. God's doing the work. He's working through faithful servants. So you want to be a faithful servant and and then you will receive your reward for how you did what? Notice, planting, watering, what are those? Those are edification activities on behalf of other believers. Paul said he was planting, Apollos was watering. Paul didn't plant himself. 
Apollos didn't come to town to water himself, okay? He came to town to water them. It's about edifying others. And so each will receive his own reward according to his own labor of edifying other believers. Are we clear on that? That's what this the whole context is dealing with. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. Okay, so maybe agriculture isn't your thing. You're not a farm boy, you're a city boy. All right, we have a metaphor for you. <laughs> and Paul then switches from a egg gardening type of context, he switches now to a construction context. And so now, you know, as his farmers can get the doctrine, now his, you know, construction guys can get the, can get the doctrine. It's the same message each time. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. You see, it's the same message he just got teaching with the planting seeds and watering. He just switched from a gardening metaphor to a construction metaphor. And he said, all right, well then, you know, I get it. Not everybody's a farmer. You probably don't think in those terms. So let's try this. Okay. And then some guys like me, I'm neither a farmer nor a builder. So what, what, what do I get? But here we have it. So I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. And once again, is he there to build up himself? No, he's there to build up others. And so no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, these are the building materials that we're putting into other people. These are the items that we are using in our construction business. And uh, as you might imagine, gold, silver, and precious stones uh, cost more than wood, hay, straw. So what are you going to do? You're going to cut corners? If you're building out a project and then you lie to the people and you promise one thing and then you put something else in there instead and you get it all, you know, put the sheetrock up there before they see, you know, how you cheated on the studs or whatever. You know, if you can, you, you can skimp on the building materials and if you're a shady kind of contractor, you can get away with it. There'll be none the wiser. But, but God knows. God knows. And when the fire hits, it's going to be clear. Because the fire is going to hit and it's going to make sure the judgment seat of Christ, that wasn't gold, silver, precious stones at all. That was wood, hay, stubble. You were taking shortcuts. You were cheating your brother, cheating your sister in what you were not giving them. And, and that's what it's about. Okay? And uh, nowhere in here does it say that uh, your spirituality is determined by how many Bible classes you attend in, uh, in that the judgment seat of Christ is not a Bible quiz. God's not going to do uh, sword drills with you and see who can turn to Ezekiel the fastest or who can find lamentations. Okay? And he never asks what you know. He just applies fire to what you've done and evaluates your production. And he says, that was well done, good and faithful servant. He says, oh, that was not well done. That was crummy. That, got, that just got burned up. Okay? <laughs> You never, I mean, think about it. It's under testing that things, the, uh, the uh, quality of something becomes obvious. As uh, Ralph LaRosa shared with us this week, you know, how many typhoons hit the Philippines every year? 
And you learn very quickly that they don't exactly have the building codes that, uh, that other countries have, you know. And uh, you get mudslides, and you get buildings collapse, and you get all this other stuff because, you know, people were building these cardboard shanties and along the riverbank. And, and uh, after the next typhoon, they'll build another one because that one's gone. And it's just, you know, you find out very quickly. Uh, what's, I, I think that what they're building, their three-story church thing, is probably the most solid building in all of Lucena City. I expect that thing's up to American codes, let alone Filipino codes and, and different things there. So, verse 13 says, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And revelation's a good thing. God exposes things, and uh, fire uh, purifies, and fire is a good thing, even if it hurts. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Remember, each man's work, not uh, the fire is not going to test the quantity of each man's Bible class attendance. It's going to test the quality of each man's work. See, understand how this happens? So clearly, the more doctrine you get, the better work you're going to do. There is a correlation there, but there's no gold stars for attendance. That's what I'm saying. It's production. What do you do? And I know people that have attended hundreds, thousands. They've got notebooks. They never do anything with it. They learn a lot of doctrine, but they're not living it out. And so uh, their fire experience will not be pleasant at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. Now, the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And it's going to be clear. Gold, silver, precious stones that will be tested and purified. Wood, hay, straw will be tested and consumed if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And that's, I don't think that's written that way on accident. It's, it's written as an if. If any man's work which he has built on it remains. There will be believers at the judgment seat of Christ that don't have things remaining. That never edified a brother or sister that never um, were even taught to edify a brother or sister. They were just saved. They were babies. They, they had a baby understanding of Christianity. Um, they kind of got their ears tickled at some place that made them feel good and thought that biblical Christianity was just a thing of, you know, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Just be a good person, feel good about yourself, and give money to the church. <laughs> and uh, there you go. And they never edified a brother. They never edified a sister. They never put gold, silver, precious stones into anybody but themselves. And so uh, when the fire hits, everything they put into other people was just wood, hay, straw. But then, if any man's work is burned up, well, who is not going to have something burned up? You know, Jesus is the only one that has nothing burned up at the, at the judgment seat. But we all have, uh, you know, some things, many things. And, and for everything that's burned, for everything that's burned, that's a loss. Because it burned and it didn't have to burn, but you took a shortcut. You cheated on the building materials. You uh, were carnal instead of spiritual when you did something. And so now it's not wood, hay, straw. Now it's not gold, and silver, it's wood, hay, straw. And so that's on you, and you will suffer loss. And, uh, and all of the, and now this is not a judgment that's going to have the Lord, Lord crowd. We, we read about that later. That's the great white throne that has the Lord, Lord crowd. I did this. I did that. There must be some mistake. Uh, I think you classified that wrong. You know, there's no, uh, there's no whining. 
that I see in this text anywhere that says, uh, oh, wait a minute, that wasn't wood, that wasn't wood, that was gold, and try to, try to do that, okay? No, it's not going to happen. The wood is the wood, and the fire shows it. What are you, you going to say? The fire hit it. It wasn't gold, all right? The fire hit it, it's gone. Suffer the loss. See, suffer the loss. <laughs> it's one of the things I'm trying to get Pastor Cliff ready for when he goes to Kiev. Because we have to give tests at the end of every module. Daniel and Revelation, whatever he's teaching on cults. And, and you have to give an exam. And then one of the things is it's legendary. If it's a facet of their culture, I don't know what it is. But we get together, we take the test, usually it's on the last day of class. And then as we grade the test together, you trade, you know, I, I tell the students, I say, give your paper to the person who likes you the least in this room. You know, and then, because you're going to grade each other's papers. And then, uh, and then you give them the answer one by one. You know, the answer is, uh, you know, filling of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And if you wrote that down, you got it right. If you wrote something else down, you got it wrong. How simple is that? Except, of course. Oh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about, what about, you know, what if I, what if you put filling of the Spirit instead of filling of the Holy Spirit? Is that okay? Okay. Yeah, that's fine. That's okay. We'll let that go. And then, and then it's on. It's a discussion for the next hour and a half about, well, my answer was kind of close. And then you sit there, and okay. And the whole time you're going through a translator, and all right. And then, but some are just so, they're not close at all. And just, no, I'm sorry, that's just, that's just wrong. Mark that down. That's, that's, that's wrong. Anyway, going to have to share that with Cliff before he gets there. He'll be, he'll be caught unawares. They like to do that. They like to debate their answers. Well, Maybe that's a cultural thing among Ukrainians or Russians or whatever. I don't know that part of the world, but um, it's not going to happen in the judgment seat of Christ. There's not going to be any, uh, you know, whining about, oh, oh, that was really gold. That was not really, you know, that was not really, you know, that was that was wood hand stubble. That's what it was. And the fire is fair. So we have those aspects there. Now, let's uh, talk about our development now. I'm going to walk us through four separate areas the uh, eternal rewards for different dispensations. We're going to start with angels. We're going to go to Gentiles, Jews, and church. And then we'll conclude it in Roman numeral three. Because I think this gets confused. And if you're reading Dillo, it gets really confused. And there's other things there that we don't want to lose sight of in, uh, in different ways. So development applications. Let's talk about eternal rewards for different dispensations and not ignoring the angels. Okay, let's not ignore the angels. They are a stewardship, just like the Gentiles, just like the Jews, just like the church. They are a stewardship. They used to be. They no longer are. And what are some of the rewards that they might receive? What are some of the things that they might be granted, given the fact that we're the ones that are judging them? Um, you recognize that, uh, that they too must be faithful in their duties, that they too... Um, uh, even though their stewardship is complete and it's over and done with, they're already in their post-mortem. We might think of them as a post-mortem experience, but it's kind of different for them because they continue to serve as they serve us. And they're going to keep doing that for all eternity. Anyway, um, Gabriel has a privilege that seems unique. He, uh, or at least fairly unique. It seems that there were seven faithful angels that were blessed with the privilege of standing in the presence of God. And uh, some would equate these with archangel rank 
or would equate these with uh, the privileges of being in the immediate presence of the Lord. And um, Gabriel does testify to this when he's speaking to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. And uh, it is a a clue, as it were, as to some of the uh, possible uh, crowns or uh, prizes or awards that uh, the angels are eligible for on the basis of their uh, stewardship. Luke one nineteen is the reference here. And uh, this is when he comes to Zacharias and he's giving him the great news that he and Elizabeth are going to have a baby, which is kind of a shock at their age. And they'd wanted one for years, but I think they've kind of resigned themselves to, you know, it's not happening now. Um, but then the angel shows up and says, it is happening, and uh, here you go. Uh, so, um, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, many will rejoice at his birth. And this, this whole prophecy comes down here, starting in verse 13, going down through verse 17. He will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, that's his mission. So Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. How will I know this? Okay. And it's, a, it's an interesting question, because it's almost word for word what Mary says. When Mary gets her message... Gabriel, same angel, Gabriel goes to her in verse 34. Mary says, how can this be since I am a virgin? And both questions are almost identical to each other with a how question and a how question followed by an explanation for why humanly that makes no sense at all. And yet Zacharias is rebuked. Mary is not rebuked. I find that interesting because with Mary, he just answers her question. Yeah, how can a virgin get pregnant? Well, God's going to do it. Oh, okay. (laughs) And Mary's great with that. All right, easy enough. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. All right. Nothing will be impossible for God. Mary says, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's a blessing for her. She's not judged. She's not rebuked. He doesn't take away her voice or put her under divine discipline. But with Zacharias, it's a different issue. Okay? Look what happens with Zacharias. You've got to back up now to, to verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Like I say, it's practically the same question Mary had. It's just, um, but here's the issue. Okay? I think, uh, clearly, Uh, he has no faith that this is even possible. Whereas Mary does have faith that not only is it possible, but God said it's going to happen. And uh, that's one thing you can't get from manuscripts is you don't get tone of voice. (laughs) And you don't get Mary in faith saying, how can this be? I'm a virgin. How can this be? And yet, even while asking how can this be, She's still accepting the truth of what the angel's telling her. Whereas John the ba- or Zacharias here is, how can this be? How can this be? You know how old I am? You know how old Elizabeth is? 
How can this be? And so it's the same, how can this be? It's just the faith or the no faith. Got it? And so in the uh, answer now, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. That, that is a deep, deep significance. And I'm sure Zechariah didn't really have a, a big clue on, on all the impact. I don't know, maybe he did. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this gospel, this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak. Because what just came out of your mouth was dumb. <laughs> it, was, it was not by faith. It was, uh, and, and we're going to hear no more of that. Your mouth is closed until uh, God has proven true, though every man a liar. And so you shall be unable uh, to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And there it is right there, the clear declaration that he was not responding in faith. He had no faith. So that's the difference. But anyway, besides all that, there's this, this phrase, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And the, uh, the unique reward that that appears to be, that not every angel is in that immediate presence. When Isaiah is up in heaven and he sees his glimpse of the throne room and the angels are there singing, holy, holy, holy. And most of those seraphim can't even look at God. They have to have their, with two of their wings, are covering their faces. Okay? But here's Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. That's a... That's an achievement, okay? And there's, there's others, little glimpses that we get of that as well, other glimpses of angelic reward. Um, angels we know, every angel is, is assigned to serve the heirs, Hebrews 1.14. Part of their reward is to serve the heirs. And so which heir of salvation do they get to serve? Do they get to serve a, a great hero or do they get to serve a, a, a loser in the church age? Who are they going to serve? But remember, even the loser in the church age is still greater than any Old Testament saint. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And the answer is yes. That uh, the rewards that are going to be given to the angelic realm include serving us. And not only does it include serving us, but we get to be the judges of that. 1 Corinthians 6.3, do you not know that we will judge angels? We will judge the angels. And so these are just uh, clues. Remember, every, uh, the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Every transgression received a just recompense. And uh, there's, there's aspects there in Hebrews 2 that we dealt with. All right, those are the rewards for the angels. We'll come back on Sunday. We'll talk about Gentile rewards. Uh, we'll talk about Jewish rewards. We'll talk about church rewards. And I think it's useful to split them up and to think of them separately because if you start to blend them, if you start to try to abscond with Jewish rewards, I think that's a problem. And it leads to additional problems of trying to abscond with Jewish promises or trying to abscond with, uh, and eventually you're full-blown on the path of replacement theology. That, as if God has no plan for the Jews at all. So don't even take one step down that path and don't even try to take one Jewish reward if it's a Jewish passage, it's a Jewish passage, and we'll accept it as such. All right. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for tonight and the blessing we have to study. 
to show ourselves approved. I thank you for your faithfulness in all these things. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.